We've been working through the Gospel of John, uh, which recounts the life, uh, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus, um, which happened some 2,000 years ago now, uh, just like the other three accounts, but it does so from a little bit different of a vantage point. We started walking through this at the beginning of the year, and here we come to chapter 9. Chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we are somewhere in the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. Somewhere in the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. And the Gospel of John is really all about unpacking primarily the events in Jesus' ministry that took place in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. So actually, for the rest of the Gospel of John, we're going to be in Jerusalem or in a little town called Bethany. Bethany is like a little Airbnb town outside of Jerusalem. Uh, two miles to the east of Jerusalem. And um, so, for instance, in the last week of Jesus' life, he found an Airbnb there, and he walked into Jerusalem every day, back and forth. Uh, That's Bethany. And so the rest of our our Gospel of John is going to take place either in Jerusalem or in Bethany. John is all about unpacking the events that happened there. And and today we come to chapter 9, and in my Bible, there's the bold heading that says, The Sixth Sign. The Sixth Sign of Jesus And so this is going to include a a miracle that Jesus performed, as well as several conversations that it produced um, between the the man who was healed, uh, the religious leaders of the time, even his parents get drug into it, and of course, Jesus. Now, if you weren't aware of this dynamic in the Gospel of John, John actually organizes his whole gospel, perhaps you're just joining us new um, in the past couple weeks, John organizes his whole gospel around seven signs were seven miracles that uh, Jesus did. Now, Jesus did many, many, many more miracles than this. Some of them are preserved in the other uh, gospel accounts. Uh, But there's seven of them. There's seven of them. And there's seven that that John really wanted to unpack that uh, served to reveal a part of Christ that he was focused on giving us insight into. Okay, so this is, he picked seven signs that kind of guide it. But then overlaid onto this are these seven I am statements of Jesus. Perhaps you've heard some of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've already come into contact with a, with a few of them. Uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, back in chapter 6, after performing a sign. Um, and then uh, in chapter 8, he does the second one. I am the light of The world is what he says. And he's going to repeat that I am statement, the second I am statement, um, in this passage today. And so you could say that this sign is an elaboration or a clarification of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Okay, so so this, this miracle, this sign, carries with it implications that he hopes that his followers might be able to hold on to and grasp and bring forward into the world. And what we're going to find is that this I am the light of the world, he heals a blind man, and then he's going to connect it to spiritual blindness. He starts talking about blindness, but it's clearly not physical blindness. It's something else entirely. He's going to talk about spiritual blindness. So so today we're really asking, we're going to be leaning into what is spiritual blindness? blindness, and what's the cure to that? And the way that Jesus talks about it is pretty complicated and and nuanced, and we might not typically think of spiritual blindness in these ways, and when we do, if we do, if we are able to grasp spiritual blindness in the ways that Jesus is talking about here, we actually discover that there's a path to life in him, 
Okay, so, so we're going to just jump right into it here. We're going we're gonna to attempt to go through this whole chapter today. It's 41 verses, so buckle up. Okay, uh, we're going to read through it all at once here. I'm going to give you a little bit of a structure to help you as we progress through it. Um, the first seven verses, if you have like a pen, you could put maybe a line after that. The first seven verses, we're going to see Jesus perform the sign or perform the work, healing the man born blind. And then in verses 8 through 34, so after verse 34, you can put another line, John shows us four conversations, four separate conversations this produced, all right, between the man, his neighbors, the Pharisees, his parents. Okay, so we have these four conversations that result as a result of Jesus healing this man. And then in verses 35 through 41, we have a final conversation between the man and and Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time there this morning, actually. So, but there's a lot of conversations to be unpacked here, but you're in luck because I have three daughters, and there's always five conversations in my house that need to be unpacked. So I've gotten really efficient at this, okay? So we're going to work through it, and uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Okay, so pick it up with me. We're going to just start it right in verse 1. I might give you some, some heads up as to things you can circle and underline as we work through it, okay? So as he was passing by, he, that's Jesus, saw, you can underline saw, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent, you can circle the word sent, it's an important word in this passage, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's that I am statement repeated. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva. And then this phrase is kind of awkward in the original language, and so no English translation actually captures it. But it literally reads, And Jesus spread his mud on the eyes. So Jesus spits in the ground, and John lets us know this is his mud, Jesus' mud. He spread his mud on the eyes. Very strange. Okay? He spread his mud on the eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. And you can circle that word because it means scent. You can circle that word. There's that scent again. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. You can underline seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen, you can underline seen, him before as a beggar, they said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he is the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam, there's that word sent again, you can circle, and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know. This is the first point in the passage where language of knowing enters in. It's really going to get highlighted towards the end a lot. They They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him, they asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told him. I washed him, I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? There was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet. You can circle prophet. Prophet is a sent one from God. 
The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, that's Jesus, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God, which is almost like a courtroom thing, like, um, you know, when uh, people are sworn in as witnesses in America, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? This is kind of the equivalent of that in that culture, give glory to God, um, tell the truth. And the irony is, is that this guy's proclaiming that Jesus just healed him, so he is giving glory to God. Okay, so give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we were Moses' disciples. But, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Or essentially, they're actualizing what his parents were afraid of in verse 22, that they would be put out of the synagogue. He was kind of excommunicated from the Jewish religious community, likely at this point. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Up to this point, he just thinks he's a prophet, just a sent one from God. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. You'd never worship a prophet, but you'd worship the one and true and only God. He conceives of Jesus as God here. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word that John uses frequently in his gospel. Your sin abides, dwells with you. All right, so a very interesting account. Lots of conversations going on here. A very complex topic is unearthed, spiritual blindness. We have a lot of big subjects here. Sight, blindness, listening, hearing, knowing, not knowing, all these some sent. What do you think one of the big things John wants us to pick up on here is that Jesus is making very clear that he was sent from God. All these things come together to inform a very complex, a very nuanced condition called spiritual blindness. 
And if you're, as it made, was made very clear in the last couple of verses, and in fact, if you were trying to follow along and be like, okay, what exactly is spiritual blindness? You may have gotten confused, at least like it's very easy to get confused here, and, and, and your pastor here was very confused at the beginning of the week, okay? This is a very confusing exchange in these last verses here. What exactly is spiritual blindness? What is it? What is that? So we have a complex notion, and John especially thinks that the followers of Jesus need it. We need it. Because I'm guessing that similar in his day, we can, similar to Christians in his day, we can typically employ the term, we can typically use the subject of spiritual blindness, um, often in a negative way. Like we might use it as a, a, sympathi- like a very sympathetic way of calling someone like ignorant or unenlightened. They're just spiritually blind. That's just what's going on. But that's not how Jesus is using it here at all. In fact, Jesus here seems to indicate that spiritual blindness is a good thing. What? It's very strange. And so by including this sign in Jesus' statements on spiritual blindness, um, John has really hoped to uncover a profound dynamic of the Christian life that is meant to create a yearning to be, to understand oneself as spiritually blind. So we're going to get into that. Uh, it's supposed to help us evaluate ourselves. So, so let's roll up our sleeves and understand what's going on here. Uh, first, before we get into the spiritual blindness piece, we actually have the, Jesus pointing this man out to his disciples. This passes by him, brings this man to their, intention, or their attention, and, and they have a very interesting question, don't they? Who sinned? that made this guy like this? Him or his parents? And we cringe, don't we? Like, oof, that's not a great question. That's not a fun question at all to ask. But we really shouldn't look down our nose too much at the disciples here. This is such a common question when we encounter suffering in the world, isn't it? This is such a common question. Why is this happening? Who messed up. Is God allowing this? Is God even doing this? Like, why is this a thing right here? This person seems innocent and they're suffering really, really intensely right now. As a pastor, I've seen this question asked dozens and dozens of times and in just as many ways. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on it because it's not John, one of John's mains, his main focuses of this passage. But, but I want to say a few words because we've all struggled with this tension um, and if we haven't, we definitely will, okay? For those of us who haven't, you definitely will. You will struggle with the reality of suffering as we encounter it in the world and the notion, the idea of a God who deeply, deeply cares for us and, and loves us and allows that to happen. Um, those are just questions that are part of being a human being in this world, and they're really important and good questions, Um, Some of you might realize this dynamic and say, oh yeah, this is what has historically been called the problem of evil in Christian Christian circles. Um, But I want to maybe tweak that even identification of what's going on here a little bit because there's actually no tidy solution. One of my seminary professors, uh, apologetics professor, great guy, Dr. Douglas Grotice, um, he... um, 
I remember this day when he brought up the problem of evil, and he's like, this actually is the biggest problem for the Christian faith. And he's like, there's no great solution for this. And, and, and that indicates that we might not be in a problem. We might actually be in a paradox. We might actually be navigating tensions here instead. This is much more of a tension to navigate than a problem to solve. We might feel threatened and have to like, oh no, this is, this is really kind of threatening my notion of who God is and maybe challenging my faith, so I want to just stick an easy solution on top of it. But whenever you try to put solutions to tensions, you actually create different problems altogether. Solutions to paradoxes, those create problems. And, and so if we do that with evil, the existence of evil and alongside a good God that, that loves us, we might be creating a few problems. One, we may have just completely mischaracterized God. Uh, two, we may actually have just completely um, reduced the dignity of human beings as being created in the image of God, or in some way we've kind of reduced what that relationship between God and humans look like if we just try to paste a solution on top of this. Um, and so I, I want to invite you to consider it as, as not the problem of evil, this is all, but, but the tension of evil in the world that God so dearly loves, the tension of evil. It, it might seem like a minor point, but it actually helps us lead with compassion and lament and, and, and understanding of people who undergo suffering, uh, that we don't try to put a quick and fast solutions to it and instead can join them and mourning it. So just this tension of evil. And for the Jews, this was especially a question that was tied to sin um, because it's right in the headline of their law. It's right in the Ten Commandments. I'll show it to you. This is, it's a very natural questions for, question for the disciples to have. This comes from Exodus chapter 20. We'll throw it on the screen for you here. We have that one way, Exodus 20. Oh, here it is. Oh, Exodus 20. Perfect. This is great. This is when Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God, Mount Sinai, 1,200 years or so, maybe before Jesus comes on the scene. Then God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing children for their father's iniquity or sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Okay, so you, this is, the Jewish people were very conditioned to view suffering through this lens. Very conditioned. The good news is, is we have God on the scene that can just correct them on the spot, right? So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say here? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Whew, great. God's not a monster at all, we say, right? Wonderful. But then Jesus kept talking. And it's still difficult, isn't it? Then Jesus kept talking. What does he say? This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Oof. Our relief comes to a screeching halt. Wait a sec. This man was blind from birth for a couple decades because God wanted to make a point? Oh, that doesn't sit well with us either, does it? Not at all. Oh, how can we follow a God like this that that uses human sufferings because he just wants to make a point? Yikes. 
This is a, this is a tension, is it not? Now, there's lots of ways to begin to wrestle with this tension. If you're, maybe you guys did it in your cohort like mine did this week. We wrestled with this tension for like 15 minutes probably. I'm sure we're going to touch on it again this week. But this is just what I want you to invite, invite you to consider in this instance. The most important evaluation of God's goodness in a scenario where someone's suffering, that, the most important evaluation doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from Jesus' disciples. It doesn't even come from this man's parents. It comes from the man himself. That's actually the most important testimony of this suffering that's been undergone. That's the most important testimony there. Being the one who actually went through it himself, after all of it, how would he evaluate God's goodness? That's, I think that's probably the most important question here. How would he, what would he say about God's goodness? If we're going to put God's goodness on trial because of this man's suffering, he should be the star witness. That's all I'm saying. He should be the star witness. What would he say? He realizes that Christ is God, and is he pissed at him for being blind? No. Worships him. This man is convinced of God's incredible goodness by the end of the passage. How can we conclude that God must be evil after examining this man's suffering when he says that God is good? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't question God's goodness. Absolutely, that's fine. That's great. Let's do it. Uh, Let's do that. We love doing that. We love having conversations about that. There's lots of tensions here, lots of great questions and doubts that we can service and talk about. Awesome. But let's just be honest with where our objections really come from. What, what, what might be making us doubt God's goodness and love? And let's start the conversation from there instead of pointing at suffering from somewhere else where even those people might be proclaiming God's goodness themselves. So that's all I'm going to say on this. I know I said it just a couple words. That there's so much more to be said on it. But let's, let's keep moving because we have a lot to get to here. Um, with the remainder of our time, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to look at who this sign says Jesus is, or how this sign speaks to who Jesus is, okay? How this sign speaks to who Jesus is. And then second, we're going to see how this sign illustrates what Jesus has come to do, okay? We're going to see that it's connected with spiritual blindness. And then we're going to briefly look at the conversations this man had to gain some insight about how we might be able to navigate conversations like these somewhat successfully, like he did, okay? I think that's why John has devoted so much room to unpack this man's conversations. He says there's something to learn here from even this man. Before he actually has confessed Jesus as God, he actually seems to have an understanding about how to have these conversations. So we'll close with just a few quick pointers on, on what he did here um, as, as he had these conversations. So first, how does this sign speak to who Jesus is? Now it's important to note that John calls these miracles in his gospel signs and works. Because when he's doing this, he's actually differentiating from the other gospel writers as he talks about the miracles of Jesus. The other gospel writers, as they talk about the miracles of Jesus, what they typically do is they, they, they use different language, like acts of power, displays of power, because they're trying to highlight the dynamic of God's kingdom through Christ was breaking into the world and, and putting out the kingdom of darkness powerfully 
And it was working, as we saw. They're trying to highlight this uh, in their gospel accounts. And so they'll even lean on the instances when that is most evident. In demon exorcisms, okay? John has none of those. John has none of those. He's not selected a single one. You see, John, we've said this several times over the course of walking through John, he has um, written this several decades after these first three accounts, and he often wanted to highlight different dimensions of Jesus' ministry that, that were taking place that the other three hadn't highlighted yet because I think what he was doing is he was realizing that, that Jesus' 12 disciples, they made disciples and passed down the message, but, but their disciples, something was being lost here. He says, oh, there's some dynamics that, that these people don't have that, that we had and we passed on to our disciples, so I need to pen this down and get them straight. Essentially, John is a big gospel of like, but wait, there's more. He's like, <laughs> like, this is the Gospel of John. You can conceive of the Gospel of John in that way, in, in so many ways. And so it's, it's no surprise that he's also trying to illuminate something new in Jesus' miracles, and he does so by calling them signs and works to capture it. Because while Jesus' miracles were acts of power that signified God's coming kingdom and, and pushing out the kingdom of darkness, they were um, the ones that he has chosen here primarily authenticate who Jesus said he was. Authenticate who Jesus said he was. That's actually the dynamic that John has been drawing out of each of the signs up to this point in his gospels, in in his gospel. Often Jesus performed miracles just clearly to make the case that he is who he said he is, the sent one from God. The Christ. And so John highlights these ones, these signs and works, and it makes sense that Jesus would primarily do these things in the city of Jerusalem right there because that is where the religious leadership led from, in Jerusalem. And so he's highlighting them. And so in this case, we have the light of the world bringing light to darkness. And John has given us a heads up at the beginning of his gospel in chapter one. We also have this on a slide if you want to throw it up their way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it or understand it. So he gives us this, which is meant to point you back all the way to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter one. Here we go. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. Called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day now, Dave's talked about this over the past few weeks as we first encountered this light of the world analogy. Okay, so if you want to unpack that further, go back there. But here in this sign, we even have further elaboration of Jesus saying, I am the creating God. He spits in the mud. It's his mud. He turns it into something. It's really meant to highlight Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, which is uh, a second almost creation account, um, but you can really view Genesis chapter 2 as like Genesis 1 is the creation of the universe. Genesis chapter 2 is really zooming in on the creation of, of human beings. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. 
And these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into him. And the man became a living being. So here we have Jesus authenticating who he was as the creating God of the universe and of even humanity specifically. That's what's going on here. He's saying, I'm the one that animated humans from the dust. This is my mud, and I bring life through mud. It's a clear callback to the creation account that he is God, just like the Jewish leadership perceived he was at the end of chapter 8 in attempt, attempted to stone him. So John's trying to help his readers see these audacious claims of Jesus to be God um, that were even baked into his miracles, not just these statements. He baked them into his miracles. And like I said, we spent a few weeks unpacking that a bit. Today we're primarily going to unpack the second aspect that's tied to these signs because these miracles are not only meant to authenticate who Jesus was as his divine status of God, they were also meant to provide insight into his, his divine purposes in the world, what he came to do as a human. Or you could call it his incarnational, that's, that's God made flesh, his incarnational strategies. This is what I'm doing now. This is why I'm coming. If you remember all the way back to the first sign, Jesus turns water into wine. And he does so not by filling the empty wine jars with water and turning that water into wine. He does so by filling the the Jewish purification jars with water and turning that into wine. Communicating a purpose of where where purity was once sought, I'm going to turn that into complete celebration. We talked about that when we went through chapter 2. Or after the fourth sign, Jesus was feeding the 5,000 people. He feeds 5,000 people, and then he launches into the statement, I am the bread of life, and gives a sermon on it, eventually culminating in my followers are going to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which creeps everybody out, and a lot of people leave. Um, But this is something that signifies his followers' dependence on him and something that we have remembered by way of communion for the last 2,000 years now. So we have a sign that's meant to illustrate a purpose or strategy of the Christ. And so, as we consider Jesus as light of the world, we have to admit that it's pretty vague, uh, perhaps a little strange, perhaps a little foreign and alien to us, and, and it seems like it's super open to interpretation. Like, we could interpret this meaning a whole lot of different things. And so, Jesus provides a sign that really helps us understand how we're to take him when he says, I am the light of the world, and he does it with a blind Man, and here's a heads up. Just like in chapter one, when John gives us a, a, a heads up, a hint as to Jesus is the creating God, he also gives us a hint as to what his incar- incarnational strategies are. And he does it by, by highlighting uh, what John the Baptist said about him. And John, I don't know what verse it is, John 1 something. John, John the Baptist looks at him, sees Jesus come up on the scene to be baptized, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so these, that's kind of like a little hint as to what these strategies are really bent towards. And we, we can begin to unpack it and see that in Jesus' discussion of spiritual blindness when he meets back up with the man. Okay, so look at verse 35. 
Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found them, or when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? I love this. Um, Perhaps this man and his plight and his suffering are not just a pawn in God wanting to tell something to everybody, to the world about himself. Perhaps he sees him as an individual and loves him deeply and cares for him deeply. Upon hearing that he's been excommunicated, he searches him out, tries to find him. He says, I'm going to have a conversation with you to bring me or bring you uh, more knowledge about who I am. And that goes like this. Um, So do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. This is such an incredible and such an amazing response. We could do a whole sermon on just this verse. It's so beautiful. Jesus has moved from prophet that's blessed him to God. He's he's moved from someone who he thinks he should revere to someone who he knows he should worship in this moment. It's so incredible. And then Jesus makes this statement about blindness. And it's really unclear who it's to. Everything about the man, that situation has been wrapped up now, okay? And Jesus just seems to just turn and make this statement. We don't know who it's, it's almost like he just shouts it in the air to the world, to the universe. He just throws this out there. He says, I came into this world, this is verse 39, for judgment, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Okay, great. Thanks, thanks for letting us know that, Jesus. And hold up a sec. I thought that, that, that you came to this world not to, to condemn the world, but to save it. What's this talk of judgment going on here? Yikes. You're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Are you here for judgment or salvation? Man, just like pick one already. This is what he's trying to help us see. There's a quality to him as the light of the world that forces people to decide, to come to a conclusion about him, and then divide. There's part of who Jesus is that as people come into contact with him, we've seen it through the first eight chapters, they come into contact, they decide who this guy is, and they divide over it. So clear in all these conversations. We know this man is a sinner, the Pharisee says. He's a prophet, the man who's been healed says. And it becomes very clear he can't be both. Can't be both. That's what verses 30 through 33, the man cl- like, can see. He can't be both of these. Jesus, with this I am the light of the world, and then bringing and just proclaiming this statement out loud, is being annoyingly black and white. He's, he's saying, everybody, as they come into contact with me, the light of the world gets sifted into two camps, the blind and those who can see. And it's a little bit confusing um, to really know who's who at this moment. The, the first person is the blind person, and when the blind person encounters him, they can see And the other person is this sighted person. And when the the sighted person encounters him, they become completely blinded. Jesus is saying the world is full of sighted and blinded people, and this is how they interact with him, or this is how they respond to him as he interacts with them, and there's no middle ground. And if you're confused about this, that's okay, that's reasonable. The religious leaders were confused about this too. 
Some of the Pharisees who were with him, in verse 40, it says this, heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? Like, we're seeing things right, right, Jesus? Right, like, being blind, that's bad, but we're, we're seeing things right, right, Jesus? Right? To which Jesus responds, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. He's trying to help them out. He's trying to help them with their misunderstanding. He's saying, oh yeah, you guys can see all right, and that's not a good thing. You can see, and that means that your sin is abiding with you, or you're enslaved to continue rebelling against God. Now, now Jesus is using a fairly complex metaphor and illustration here, but it's really beautiful once you grasp it, and it's It's easier to grasp it once we make clear what characterizes the blind person who, when they encounter the light of the world, um, gains their sight. This is, and this is why he's healed a blind person to illustrate that. Because those blind people are just like the blind man who's sitting on the side of the road begging. How so? He has fully acknowledged and admitted that he has a problem. He, he, he can't see. He, he sees himself rightly in a weird way. There's this ironic sense in which a person who's blind actually has an accurate sight on themselves. He sees himself rightly as blind, and he knows there's nothing he can do to fix it. I'm blind, and there's nothing I can do to fix it. That's what Jesus says this blindness is that he can come into and heal. He's someone that recognizes their dependency and is begging for healing. Jesus is saying there's a spiritual state that's almost identical to that. There's a spiritual state that exists where people can look at themselves, realize that they are blind or, or, or broken or in darkness, and there's nothing they can do to get out of it. Jesus says, to that person, I show up, and they can see. To that person, when I step into that person's life, sight, it bursts forth. They've come to the correct conclusion about their condition. They've surveyed themselves. They've come to the honest conclusion, I don't have the sight and the perspective I need in order to live my life. No matter how hard I try, I can't figure life out on my own. The things that I think should lead to life, I try them, and they don't. I'm in more darkness than before. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm plagued by all these sin patterns that completely consume me, and I'm powerless to get away from them, even though I don't want to participate with them. If there's an all-powerful, all-eternal being that's good and perfect, I'm going to be at odds with that person. That's spiritual blindness, a right view of oneself, and an understanding that there's nothing we can do to fix it. It's an honest conviction of our own darkened hearts, our own darkened states. We've come to an accurate understanding that there's nothing within our powers that can pull us out of the muck, out of the mire. We accurately see ourselves. It's ironic that spiritual blindness is actually right sight and right conclusion of the self. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, is what that person says. And there's nothing I can do to change that fact. We see ourselves as blind and darkened in the world. And this is the one who Jesus says he can actually heal. 
It's an incredible thing to proclaim your blindness. It's an incredible thing to realize and come to terms with the lack of good, with the lack of good within us. This is highlighting how we must say that I am a sinner before we can look to Christ and say, save me. Jesus is saying, I always show up to deliver that person. Always, no matter what. When people truly seek him, when they truly have come to the conclusion that they need a way forward and that they are powerless to actualize it themselves, Jesus says, I'm there. And I heal that. That's why I came to the world. When we ask God to help us with the dependency of a blind person that knows that they can't heal themselves, Jesus jumps into that situation. When we seek like that, we always find him. When we knock like that, the door, it's always opened. When we realize our dependence, then we have an opportunity for grace. That's what Jesus is saying. This is who, this is the type of person that Jesus has the opportunity to jump into their lives and bring them life and life up. Abundantly. Now, what about the other side of the equation? What characterizes those who think they can see? Well, it's actually quite the opposite. They, they may have some insight into the problems they're stuck in, sure, but they don't imagine for a second that they need someone else's help with it. It's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. They especially don't think they need Jesus' help with it. When they look at themselves, they probably do both things. They minimize the problem and maximize their optimism that they can fix it. Minimize the problem and maximize the, 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 the likeliness that they can fix it, which is to say they, they, they overestimate their own goodness and they overestimate their own power. They see themselves as powerful and good instead of God as powerful and good. This is the foundational irony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what John's getting at. It's like the, the, the core essence of the gospel of Christ. It's not, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't necessarily all about that God became human. It's the fact that humans have been trying to be God. And then we need God to show up on the scene and show us and let us know, no, you're not God, I'm God. Keep trying to heal yourselves, tell me how that goes. Keep trying to, to, to bring light into your life, tell me how that goes, but I am the light of the world. And if you look at me and recognize me as the one who can, can heal your ailing state, let's do it. That's the, the, the foundational, really, element of, of the gospel. Human beings have put themselves in the place of God. Now, I needed a custom railing built in my backyard. Very important. I needed a custom railing built in my backyard. And uh, so I, I wanted a metal one. So I called up metalworker Nate Anselmi. I don't know if he's here today. Sedaris metalworker Nate Anselmi, who um, was baptized about five or six years ago now. Anyways, Nate does incredible work. He is a craftsman. Anybody who's had work done by Nate, you're like, I had no idea it could look that good. Wow, you know, like Nate is a craftsman. So I needed a railing to go across the back of my house so my kids didn't fall like four feet into the yard. And then like down the stairs, okay? Kind of go down the stairs. And so Nate, Nate is just like the nicest guy. Um, he's like so agreeable. He's super easygoing. He's just always just like, yeah, man, I'm, I'll flow with whatever. Let's just, I'm just glad to be here, you know? 
Um, and so as we were kind of planning this out, we were talking about it, and we were sharing our ideas, and, and uh, you know, he said, hey, man, at the top of this railing, it'd be really, really nice if I use, like, this two-by-four piece of steel that I have, because, man, that's going to look really nice and feel really nice. And I was like, ah, four inches seems really wide. Let's do a three-inch one. Okay, so, okay, yeah, sure, what a really easy-going guy, okay. And then, uh, you know, when uh, we were designing how it would go down the stairs, he kind of had it going all the way down the bottom. I was like, hey, you know, it feels really narrow through there. Can we, like, actually not have it go down to the last step, just a step before the last step? Because it just feels really narrow. That'll let us access the backyard a little bit better. He said, yeah, sure, no problem, no problem. Um, and then when they actually had it done there, installing it, he um, actually came and and I was there as they were installing it. I said, oh, you're kind of installing it, like, according to this line of the house. I think it would look a little better if you installed it according to this line of the house. He said, sure, no problem. And I thought I was seeing it so clearly. I thought, oh, I said, oh yeah, this is going to be great. You know what? On the back end, I really wish I just let the master craftsman do his work. I wish that I could like just sit on, like stand on that back railing and just set my bevy right there. I can't. It's too narrow. If I had an extra inch, I definitely could. And it's just slightly off skew, you know? More importantly, sometime in the last spring, I was walking down the steps and I was looking at the sunset, which was beautiful. I was holding the railing, the railing ended, and my brain thought, the stairs are over now. Do you want to know why? Because of something called building codes, okay? You're supposed to bring them all the way down at the end, so railings go all the way down. My, my, my railings are not like that. And so I tripped, and I rolled my ankle face to the concrete. It was so bad. It was a Friday. I remember it was Friday. I was preaching on Sunday. If you go in the sermon archives, there's a sermon where I don't move an inch. <laughs> My ankle was killing me. I don't move an inch. It hurt for months. It hurt for months. If only I had admitted my blindness and let this sided metal worker do his thing. But I didn't. I was arrogant. I thought I knew best. I thought I saw the problems of the project. I thought I knew how to best plan for and navigate them, but I was wrong. And I ended up with a face full of concrete and limping around for a couple months. Will you come to terms with and yield to Jesus' evaluation of you? That you are spiritually blind and unable to fix your situation. Only when you grasp that only when you can say that you are in fact a sinner and cry out for help can the light of the world break into your life and bring you that life that the light was meant to bring. Um, up to this point, we've, we just talked about the, the individual dynamic with regards to sightedness and blindedness. There's actually a big corporate dynamic that's at play in this text that this metaphor is also meant to go to because entire societies can conceive of themselves as good and powerful and arrogantly claim to have perfect perspectives on all the problems and perfect solutions that we need to walk towards to to, to solve them. Nations, states, cities. We can all carry the air of this. We have identified the problem and we have the solution. Give us enough time and money and get enough people who disagree with us out of here so we can actualize it. This happens across the political spectrum, by the way. Like, this is, and across all countries, by the way. We know the problems. Give us enough time and money. Get the people who disagree with us out of here and we can actualize the solution. It's pure arrogance. 
We can create the policies and the regimens we need. We can get really close to utopia here on earth. Once we get them set, we can police it closely so that no one deviates from it, so that we can stick with it. We can actualize this perfect, harmonious human society in our midst. All of which, all of which to which I would say, all to which I would say, you sound like a Pharisee. You sound... Don't be tempted to think of the Pharisees as just these religious people who like looked at individuals and shamed them for their sin. They were motivated by something much, much, much deeper and and much, much more corporate on a far grander scale than that. They didn't think they needed to rely upon God to create the harmonious society. They just thought they needed to rely upon the law. And if we all follow after the law of God in the right way, we can actualize perfection in our midst. This is actually what their frustration with Christ is rooted in. Hey, man, we're trying to create a perfect, harmonious society of shalom here on earth, and this Jesus of Nazareth is messing it up by by going against God's law and healing on the Sabbath. What the heck? We need to get rid of him. See that? This is the the fundamental disposition of essentially every human as we come into the world. We can identify the problem, we can think of a solution, and we can actualize it. It's especially true in America, and that's because of Thomas Jefferson. Ooh, didn't think he'd go there. Thomas Jefferson. And I brought this on stage, this is the Jefferson Bible. We actually don't have time to go into the whole Jefferson Bible thing. But there's this reality that, 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 that you can have founding fathers. The Jefferson Bible is essentially just cutting verses out of the gospel accounts into the life and teachings of Jesus and saying, if we follow these, we can actualize the perfect state in the world. There's no better teaching than the gospels, to which we all say, amen. Jefferson says we can get the most people to follow this if we cut out all the miracles and stuff. So, like, only verses 1, 2, and 3 from our chapter make it into the Jefferson Bible. Only 13% of it. We've always thought that we can actualize a perfect society on earth without God. And it can even covertly look like taking, law, taking God's words to do it without depending on him. This is complicated, tricky, nuanced stuff. This is what Jefferson did. This book was actually really cool. I came across it in a weird way, but... It's actually printed in 1902, so if you want to come up and, and fumble through it, if you're like a history nerd like me, after the service, feel free. Uh, but th- we've been doing it for a long, long, long time. This is the blind leading the blind. The blind, and, and we can think about it in a lot of different ways. This is the arrogantly self-righteous leading people who want to be righteous. This is drunk people leading other drunk people to do stupid things. You can probably think of instances in your life where you've encountered that. Here's the really tragic part that Jesus highlights to all those who claim to see. The light shows up. He shows up, and their response is typically rejection, rage, rebellion. They're further blinded. Or you could say they risk eternal blindness at this point. Jesus, you think you can help us? No, get out of here, Jesus. They risk eternal blindness at this point. And C.S. Lewis actually was great Christian thinker um, of the 20th century, and he just had a, a, a great insight here that, that is so helpful for us as we conceive of people rejecting the light and, and being further hardened when he shows up. He, he talks about how, well, most, most kind of jarringly, he said, uh, people in hell have actually turned around and locked the doors from the inside so that God can't invade. 
and, and, and impinge on them in any way, shape, or form. Or he does so in the great divorce at the beginning with his illustration, uh, kind of outlining what hell might look like. And it's not these pictures of torment and, and destruction. It's actually people running further and further and further away from God and one another into isolation and depravity. But there is healing and forgiveness if we find that we've arrogantly trusted our own evaluation of ourselves and and the world. Once we find that out, once we can say that, oh my goodness, I'm actually conceiving of myself as too good and too powerful here. Once we can, there's hope for us in that moment because we have the opportunity to admit I'm a sinner, I don't have the power that I need to, to figure this out, and you can cry out for help and Jesus comes in. Well, the rest um, is history. I actually heard someone's story this week um, about how someone over the summer came to this very realization in life. They grew up as a Christian, but, but this is what they said. They, he, or they said, I felt so stupid. Like God was right there all along. I just never saw him. I just, oh, I missed it. But then... There was a, you can only say that when your eyes have been opened, when Jesus has changed your paradigm, when, when you have admitted your blindness, and then Jesus, oh, I missed it. It was right there. I feel so stupid. It's right there all along. But this is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus works. And if you're not asking God for help, I don't have time to unpack this phrase, but if you're not asking God for help, you probably are more sighted than you care to admit you're not asking God for help, you probably arrogantly think there's more goodness and power in you than you care to admit. All right, now, let's work through these, well, we're not work through the conversations. Let's draw out these final things from these conversations this, this healed blind man had with these leaders. There's a, there's a couple things I want to just point at very quickly that give us a little bit of, of, of insight into how do we have these conversations? Because there's a dynamic that's very present here and very present in this text. And, and that if Jesus truly does come as the light of the world and divides people into two separate camps, that means um, that these camps are obviously going to disagree with one another. And it's likely that the arrogant are going to try to make the humble be quiet like they are here. Uh, Jesus gave his disciples all good insight as to what that is, and this dynamic that would be present when he says at the Last Supper, if or when, you could say, the world hates you, just remember it hated me first, okay? And so that happens to this man too, but he navigates these conversations really well. And what's so profound about it is he's not like that smart. He's not that clever. They're like really simple. They're really simple things that he does to stay on top of the conversation and keep it on the right subject. Um, So what are those simple things that he did? First, the man appealed to undeniable facts. He just said, "These these are the facts of the matter. Verse 15, he put mud on my eyes. I wash and I can see. Oh, that's pretty straightforward there. 25, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I see. He's just pointing at the facts at hand. This happened. Jesus did this for me. You can just complete the sentence for yourself. This is what Jesus did for me. That's a fact. Second, the man answers directly, yet briefly. So verse 17, they ask, him, they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet. He's a prophet. That's all he says. That's all he says. And the Jews dismiss him. 
He just answers very directly yet briefly. He, he doesn't try to sideset the truth or, or soften it. He doesn't go into like, a, oh, and this is who a prophet is, so this is why I think he's, he just says, this is the fact as I know it, and this is a, a brief uh, and direct answer to your question. What this does is it actually, the longer an argument or an exchange takes place, the more opportunity, with regards to these matters in particular, the more opportunity there is for it to devolve into a personal offense and a personal argument instead of an objective one. And so just a brief, simple answer is wonderful. Uh, third, this man refused to argue, verses 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said. You didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't, want, you don't want to become his disciples too, do you? He refused to rehash it from different angles, to give them different opportunities. to try. He just, I'm not going to argue with you about this. I gave you the facts. I gave you my interpretation of the facts. That's what it is. And then fourth, the man remained fearless and resolved. And Jesus, in, in the back end of this gospel, is going to tell his followers that this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our midst when we're brought before people in question. He talks about this dynamic in particular. But this man really adopts this attitude of all truth is God's truth, and I don't need your acceptance because I was just accepted by God. Your acceptance means much less than me. I was just accepted and healed by God. Whenever we're rejected by the world for our belief in Christ, this is something Jesus promises as well, he draws especially close in persecution. He's always there in an abundance. And so the, there's, there's no reason to fear rejection because we actually find deeper acceptance by Christ as we go through these things. So what does this sign tell us? It tells us that Jesus audaciously claimed to be the God of the universe. It tells us that he, all of humanity is darkened, but for those willing to admit it, they have the opportunity to find the illumination and healing of Jesus Christ to remove their sin. And for those unwilling to admit it, they will be further offended and enraged by Jesus Christ, setting them up for eternal blindness. And lastly, this means that conflict is inevitable to arise between Jesus and Jesus' followers and those who reject him and those who embrace the goodness and, and power of humans. And so may God just grant us all the grace that we need in order to, to evaluate where we're at and what steps we need to take as, as we really unpack this spiritual blindness. May we even pray for it in our midst. May we ask the Lord uh, to bring spiritual blindness upon us, which is a right understanding of who we are, the predicament we're in, and the inability we have to solve it on our own. Let's pray.